Grab now your Bibles and open them back up to the book of Job. And let me read you, um, oh, out of two chapters, uh, some out of 23, some out of 24. So you'll just have to follow with me. The first 10 verses of 23. Here now, that which is inerrant and infallible and inspired the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here it comes. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Chapter 24, verse 1. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture, pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road, the poor of the earth. All hide themselves. Behold, wild, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked, without clothing, and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked, without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves among the olive rows of the wicked. They make oil. They tread the wine presses, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. Verse 20. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, the book of Job is, a, is an odd little book. Actually, it's not very little, but it's, a, it's an odd book. It's a unique book for, for lots of reasons. Uh, the subject matter, for instance, is one reason, uh, suffering. I, as I've said in the past, um, no book in the history of human literature has dealt with suffering uh, more honestly, more openly, more candidly, more um, at at more depth than has the book of Job. It it is because of the book of Job that we say things like, there's nothing more inevitable than suffering. But another oddity of the book is its its format. Ladies and gentlemen, there's not a book like it in in the entire Bible. What it is is a dialogue, as, as I hope you've seen over the, over the weeks. It's a dialogue among four people um, for, 32 of the, for 36 of the 42 chapters. 
It's a dialogue among these four people. And, and consequently, when you're studying the book, you've got to keep up with who's speaking, uh, when, and uh, responding to what. Um, but also, it's, it's, it's somewhat poetry, or the book is. It, uh, its themes flow from one chapter to the next chapter. There are these long soliloquies. Elihu has a six-chapter-long soliloquy. Um, it's, a, it's a patchwork affair. Some scholars have sought to, um, to rearrange it so that it would be more artistically satisfying because it's, it, it just, it's disjointed at times. And not to mention, of course, the, um, the translation problems. I mean, there is some, there's some very difficult Hebrew in this, in this book. But in spite of all of that, ladies and gentlemen, there's one clear message that stands out about from the book of Job. It's a certain sound. And, th- and that sound is, or that message, or that lesson is, it matters how we suffer. It matters. You know, there is a, um, there is a statement that Jesus makes in the last hours of his life. I mean, this is, this is only hours before he is, um, he's arrested and taken away. It's in, it's in John 14, which is called the Olivet Discourse. But, um, Jesus states in, he says this in John 14. He says, um, uh, but I do as the Father has commanded so that the world may know that I love the Father. Did you get that? So that the world may know. That is, even to Jesus, it matters how he suffered. That is, even Jesus is concerned that the world be shown how the righteous suffer, or how the righteous are to suffer. Um, this strange spectacle of a, of a righteous man leaning the entire weight of his life on, 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 on a on the nature and the character of the one, on, of, of, on a God that he considers to be altogether lovely. The, the innocent sufferer um, knows that his suffering is being watched. And so it matters. It matters how. Not just that we do, it's, it's inevitable that we do suffer. It matters how. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, ever since Jesus completed his suffering, suffering has meant something entirely different for the Christian than it does to the rest of the world. Suffering for us is our opportunity to display love for a God who is not giving us what we want. Isn't that the crux of the issue? I mean, not getting what we want equals suffering? You know, guys, Christianity talks a lot about surrender. And I'm sure you've heard that. We we sing songs about it. But surrender doesn't even enter the conversation until I'm deprived of something that I want. You know, uh, R.C. Sproul, one of my my heroes, uh, said one time, he said... 
if if God never ever gives me another nice thing, I would be obligated to serve and love him based on the good things that he has already given to me in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness of sin. You know, that's a nice statement. It's a it's a it's a wonderful sentiment. But ladies and gentlemen, even forgiveness of sin becomes a consolation prize to people who who didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get the job that they had longed for. They didn't get the date to the prom that they hoped would come through. They they didn't get the report from the CAT scan that that they had hoped. So, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think what I'm saying is simply this. One of the reasons that we're spending this much time in the book of Job is because how we suffer matters. We're trying to learn, we're trying to take away from the book of Job some lessons as to how we might do this better. As to how we might do this well. Now, that all said, it brings me to kind of the, the text itself. Guys, I, I, uh, I wonder if you're confused as I, as I read these texts because, you know, after a while, it, um, I know they all kind of run together, but I'm, I'm telling you, there's, there's just wonderful stuff in this, this text that I read. I mean, I'm going to try to explain it, but... You know, it seems to me that, that, that all of Job's friends say essentially the same thing, and they say it three times. Three different phases, three different rounds. They all say the same thing, and they, they just keep repeating themselves. But in every one of Job's speeches, there's something surprising. There's, there's something that, that just borders on the uncanny. And chapter 23 is a good example of that, ladies and gentlemen. Gang, did you understand what he was saying in the first ten verses of of chapter 23? Did you get it? Did you see what he's asking for? Do you notice what his request is, guys, in the first ten verses of chapter 23? It's a request that most of us would consider insanity. Job wants to appear before the judgment seat of God. He says that in verse 3, that I might come even to his seat. He sees it, that is, Job sees the judgment seat of God. He, He sees it unlike everybody else. He sees it as a place of refuge. What he longs for, more than anything else, listen to this. What he longs for. More than anything else is to be judged by God. Anybody else in here share that sentiment? Job wants his day in court. Job knows that if the whole truth could be brought out into the open, that his name would be cleared. He wants to sue for defamation of character. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there is something extraordinarily commendable about that. But there's something reckless in it as well. 
It's, it's as if he almost gets it. But not quite. And ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to your soul, not quite is not good enough. We see in this text that I read you, we see the, the commendable part and the reckless part over and over and over again in this section. And that's what I want to try to point out to you. I want to show you the, the commendable part. Then I want to show you the reckless part of what he says and from what I read you. Let me show you the commendable part first. And, and we'll, I'll keep showing it to you for the rest of my time. Job believes that this divine court where his case might be adjudicated. He believes in a court where his case might be adjudicated. His friends don't believe that. Your friends don't believe that. Job's friends think the whole idea is scandalous. Job's friends, I mean, for Job's friends, God is not real enough to have to ever have such a thing happen. Which is such a 21st century idea. Oh, we, we, we scoff at such a notion. But for Job, Job is a man who longs for that, for his case to be adjudicated before a God of justice. You know, um, A.W. Tozer uh, once defined a Christian like this. This was his definition of a Christian. He said, a Christian is a holy rebel loose in the world with access to the throne of God. Don't you love that? A holy rebel loose in the world with access to the throne of God. That's what Job is. He's this holy rebel, loose in the world, knowing that he's got access to God. Job believes in a place where justice is done. Do you get that? Job believes in a place where justice is done. He believes that that place is a place where a mere man can lay out his case before God. And he is eager to have that process begin. He begs for it in the first ten verses of chapter 23. He, He wants to clear his name. He also wants to clear the name of Yahweh. That's also commendable. But here's the reckless part. What Job doesn't fully realize is just how this scene will unfold. He doesn't fully understand why he and and any of the rest of us too, were we to to appear before that judgment seat ill-prepared, then justice will turn out to be our utter horror. Job in verse 10 of 23 says, He shall try me and I shall come out as gold. And yet Job does not yet understand where that gold is going to come from. But guys, the desire, the desire... On, on Job's part, to, to appear before God. It's so commendable. 
it, it means at least this much. It means at least that he's he's come this far. Um, do you know the text that we love to talk about in Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. His desire means that at least he's come that far. More than I can say for a lot of us. At least he's come to the place where he says, I'm committing everything to God. I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to acknowledge all of my ways to him, and then he, whatever he chooses to do, he will direct my paths. It will be good. Gang, that's exactly what you and I don't do in the midst of our pain. You know, so often in the midst of our pain, we begin to to lean on our own understanding. And the whole experience begins to spin faster and into oblivion because, because of our inappropriate solutions to our situations. You know, there is a there is a famous part of the New Testament called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and part of it's more famous than the other part. But in chapter 6, there's this, there's this story about worry, be anxious for nothing, you know, that, 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 that's chapter 6. He talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and Solomon arrayed and all that. But you remember that? Well, in, when he's talking about the, the, the lilies, he says this. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. <laughs> spin? What is spinning? Oh, we know what spinning is. Don't we? Spinning is that is that frenetic search for a solution. Any solution. Fast. Anything that will reduce my pain. Guys, in the life of the believer, one of the hardest things in the midst of pain not to do is to spin. Why is that hard, Jimmy? Well, because what it means is that we surrender our will. What it means is giving up doing things the way that I thought they should be done. What it means is, guys, giving up all of those pet projects that are designed to make me into something. It means giving up all of that. And I can tell you at least Job has come that far. You know, there's a, there's a, what I think is just a wonderful word picture in, in the book of Joshua. Let me see if I can convey it. Guys, Joshua chapter 3. Joshua, Moses is dead. Joshua is leading Israel into the promised land. Are you there? Are you still with me? Leading Israel in the promised land. And uh, there's Jericho right over here. And they're about to fight the battle of Jericho. Joshua, the battle of Jericho. Jer- you know, that battle, that big battle, you know, where the walls come down like that. But they got a problem. Uh, there's, a, there's a river in between where they are and Jericho. The river Jordan is uh, at flood stage and it's over the banks and et cetera, et cetera. And so they wonder, well, how are we going to get over there? 
So God comes to Joshua and says, okay, I'm going to get you across, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to part those waters, and you're going to walk through dry shod, and here's how I want that to be done. I want all the priests to gather the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody knows what the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant is that thing that represents the presence of God. Um, I want you to get all the priests uh, together uh, around this Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to, to lead them out, and when the soles of their feet hit the water, the water will part, and you can walk through dry shod. And tell the rest of Israel... To keep their distance, 100 paces or so, but stay right in behind them. And to the degree that you stay in behind them, you will be led. Now, we've got our own ideas about how to get across that thing, don't we? Well, we'll chase that over there and we'll dart out over here. But if you stay right behind God's and His leadership... He'll lead you. But oh, do we have plans of our own. And thus, we spin. Gang, let me read you that Proverbs 3, 5 just one more time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. What I'm saying is that Job at least has come that far. We haven't, but he has. All of our little plans have got to go. But as for Job... Just give me the chance to meet with God because I can't wait for Him to direct my path. That's all so commendable. Gang, the life of faith that we Christians say we got, the life of faith has has that as its center. Surrender. And, and Job even mentions that. I didn't read this part, but it's over in verse 13 of 23 where he says, He is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Can you hear what Job... I mean, Job has come to the place where he says, you know, nobody's going to change him. And what he desires to do, he does. And when you and I throw our lot in with that God then one of the things that we know down deep is that he does what he pleases. And what he pleases is right. And what he does, he does very well. So get behind him. And follow. This, this desire that he expresses in chapter 23, it reeks with surrender. But unfortunately, there's a missing element about all of his calculations. And so once again, we're back to the reckless part. You see, the difference between Christians and Job is that we know that once we get to that judgment seat, 
there's someone who is awaiting us there to, to represent us as our advocate. Job's problem, his recklessness is caused by the fact that he knows, at least consciously, only half of the gospel. And, and the, the, the half that he knows is that God will do right, and that's commendable. But what he doesn't know is how he's going to do that right. We know, or at least supposed to, as as professing believers, we know that to be a believer in this great God is to be able to stand before the throne of this gloriously intractable deity and to have our sins swallowed up in an ocean of righteousness made available to us through Christ Jesus. But that's the part Job hasn't yet seen. You know, guys, the half that he doesn't fully know, he kind of hints at in verses 16 and 17. He says, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Do you see it, guys? I, I can't, I want to stand before God, but there's a darkness. And I, and I can't fully explain the darkness yet. He's gotten as far as saying, God will do right. But I don't yet know how he's going to do that right. He hasn't figured out how the gold is going to become his. Now listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. When face to face with God, without something to cover your nakedness, you are faced with everlasting punishment. I can't say if Job grasped all that at this point. But this much I can say. Every person here should have grasped it. The gold, the covering for my sin, the someone who awaits me at the judgment seat, it's all Christ. All of that is resolved in the person and the work of Christ. Guys, in in chapter 24, he continues his complaint, but his complaint is different. He continues to want to appear before God, but the complaint over here is now, in in verse 1, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? You know, again, look at what he says in verse um, verse 2. Some move landmarks. Verse 4, they thrust the poor off the road. Verse 14, the murderer rises. Verse 15, the eye of the adulterer also waits. What he's saying is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a part of my complaint. And when I, if you'll let me appear before you, 
Why is it that they move the landmarks and get away with it? Why is it that the poor is thrust off the road? Why is it that the murderer gets away with it? Why is it the adulterer goes ahead with his adultery? Because in his heart of hearts, he knows that this God has got to do right. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And I want to appear before the judgment seat of God because I want to ask Him. Why is it that the wicked continue to get away with their wickedness? Because Job knows. He knows that somehow God is going to do right. And by the way, that's why I read verse 20. Did you get that? 24-20. He's wrestling with his own situation and watching the wicked advance. And then he says, the womb forgets them. Look at this line. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. You see, he's got half of it. I know that somehow God will deal with wickedness. He just doesn't know how he's going to deal with it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, once again, the answer once again is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Job is a man who is disoriented by his own pain. He is swirling in these onslaughts of confusion, but he knows that he knows wickedness will not win. But the solution for wickedness, not only theirs, but his own, how is that going to be remedied? We know, ladies and gentlemen, that the remedy for our wickedness comes as the result of the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know, guys, I, I'm sorry I didn't write down who said this because they, need a, they deserve a lot of credit. This is a great quote. I just don't know who said it. He said, Faith is the ability... To tolerate the intolerable paradox of God's clear, undisputed title as Lord of the universe, in spite of his apparent absence. Did you get that? Listen, my brother and sister in Christ. Faith is the ability to tolerate the intolerable paradox. What paradox? Oh, the paradox of God's clear, undisputed title as Lord of the universe 
in spite of his apparent absence. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's what we've got. Faith is the ability to to tolerate an intolerable paradox. The wicked will be judged. How? Job didn't know. But we do. Does Job have it all sorted out just yet? Not even close. But deep in him there is this hope that ultimately the scales will be balanced. And you know what? You've got that same longing in you. You know, guys, one of the privileges of my job, I guess it's a privilege, but I hear stories that will just curl your eyelashes. I heard one recently where a young girl was the daughter of a, I won't tell you what kind of preacher, but was the daughter of a preacher. And her grandfather sexually abused her. And the preacher father would take his daughter over to his daddy's house. And so she would run and hide on the roof. So she wouldn't be sexually abused by her grandfather. Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, does anything in you cry out for justice? It's in there, isn't there? It's in all of us. Where did it come from? Where did that interest in, that desire for justice come from, ladies and gentlemen? Let me tell you where it came from. It came from the Imago Dei. You ever heard that term? It's a Latin phrase, which simply means the image of God. The Imago Dei. That I am a creature made in the image of God. I am made in His image. And that longing that just went off in you when I told you that story... The thing that went off in me when I heard it. That longing, that desire to see justice done. That thing is in there. Because I am made in the image of a God of justice. And if there is no God, ladies and gentlemen, there will be no justice. I'm telling you, one of the proofs of God's existence is this thing that I find in me and you find in you and even non-Christians find in them. I'm telling you, if you're a non-Christian this morning, that story about that little girl, you, 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 you rebelled at it. Where did that come from? It came from the fact that you're made in the image of God. And one of the proofs of his existence is that that this, that I find this thing in me, this desire to see justice done. But I finish with this, ladies and gentlemen. 
my friend, if you are here this morning outside of Jesus Christ, if you have no advocate before the Father, if you have no covering for your nakedness, if there's no access to gold for you, if you are outside of Jesus Christ right this minute, don't ever ask for justice. Ask for anything, but don't ask for justice. Until Jesus Christ becomes your Savior, getting justice is the last thing you want. Guys, the most hopeful thing for us as Christians is not that my pain is yours or your pain is mine. The most hopeful, pain, most hopeful thing is that our pain is His. But for the non-Christian... Your pain is all yours. And it lasts forever. Come to Christ. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, use the, the clamorings of Job and all that he's wrestling with in the midst of his situation to to show us the great beauty of the gospel. That indeed justice will be done, but we are not fit to receive justice. That Jesus Christ received justice in our place. And that because he has, we now are covered by his righteousness and what we get is mercy. So, Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, who, who, are, who, who are unwilling to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior, would you um, open their eyes to see that even in their breast there is a longing to see justice done And that came from being made in your image. Oh God, to be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ, it is glory indeed. Do that again for somebody else. Someone even in the room this morning. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.